Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we are excited to bring you two women who celebrate finding feminism. Amber Tamblin, actor, poet, cultural critic, and author of seven critically acclaimed books, including her latest, Listening in the Dark, Reclaiming the Power of Intuition, talks with Jessica Valenti, feminist writer, co-creator of the blog Feministing, and author of five books, including Sex Object, a memoir. They discuss how to survive in this hellscape of a world after the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the political and cultural gaslighting that women face, and how to find your intuitive process. In this invigorating conversation, they may even talk about men who don't exist. Inspiration starts now. Jessica fucking Valenti. <laughs> Hi, Amber. Um, how are you in this uh, gestures wildly at the world that is literally and metaphorically on fire? In the in the current hellscape, I am I am in hell in the hellscape. <laughs> I am I am doing relatively okay. This is like what I say whenever I'm emailing someone <laughs> after a while, after asking how they're doing in the hellscape, I said, I'm doing relatively okay. About as okay as I can be doing. How about you? See, they thought that the listeners right now thought they were listening to the author's podcast between authors, but really we're just launching our new podcast called Relatively Okay with Jessica Valenti and Amber Tamblin. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. And that's like on a good day. Yeah. Relatively okay. <laughs> <laughs> It'll have to be like a once a week podcast because right. it's not not relatively okay on most days. How how I mean in in all sort of seriousness, but um, how have you been? How have you been doing? I mean, this is so interesting in this political time. Um, I've seen so much of the incredible work you've been writing on your Substack page, which I love so much. Um, and uh, I just wonder, how have you been doing as a feminist, as an activist, as a writer? What, you know, we're going to talk a lot about intuitive intelligence as it pertains to, to women and writers. Um, and I, so I guess I would start in that sort of beginning space sure. and ask you, truly, how are you doing in this time? I mean, truly not great, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I, I am working a lot, as you said, like I'm doing this substack, I'm writing about abortion every day, which is, has the effect of both making me feel useful and good and like I have a little bit of control in a very uncontrollable situation in country, but not great because I'm writing about abortion every day and because I'm writing about these like, hor honestly, like horrible, horrible stories um, that just show no sign of slowing down. And so it's it's been difficult. I was saying to my husband the other night, like this is probably the most I've worked, the hardest I've worked in a, since my 20s in a really, really long time, 20 years. Um, but, <laughs> There's something, I, I feel like I sort of made this decision um, when Roe got overturned that I was just going to be relentless. 
that the only way to, to do this and to respond to this was to be fucking relentless mm -hmm. and not stop. Um, and I think a lot of people are doing that right now, you know, like, because that's, that's what the moment requires. Um, and so that's, that's sort of a dark answer, uh, but it's the, the true one. <laughs> um, I, but I hope that you're doing okay. I, I feel similarly. Um, I think what's interesting for me, and I think what's very interesting, particularly pertaining to the work that I've done for this book, which you have such an incredible essay in, Listening in the Dark, um, Reclaiming the Power of Women's Intuition. Um, actually, I don't think that's the subtitle of our book. <laughs> I think it's Women Reclaiming the Power of Intuition. Um, uh, but, you know, in, in thinking about being okay with talking about not being okay is also been, it has been such a process for me to not put on a face and not to yeah. try to pretend like things are okay just to make other people feel okay, which yeah. I know for women is, um, is very hard to do because we have been conditioned our entire lives to put on a smile and make things all right. And just pretend like, okay, well, we're just going to work to fix it and things are fine while we're also like, you know, suffering from debilitating cramps from our periods or endometriosis or what are all, whatever else is happening in our lives. So I actually really respond to that. And I feel that like the idea to just say things are not okay. And that's okay. That's where we're at. And, um, uh, you know, part of my intuitive process in all of this, um, has been really fascinating. I, I think, for instance, when when I asked you to write an essay for this book, and I knew yeah. the book was coming out in the fall of 2020, I just was not thinking about the midterms. I right, right, right. I like you and most other, you know, people who were paying attention to the Dobbs case, which is what basically overturned Roe v. Wade. And and I've been thinking about that for a long time, knowing that it was coming, trying to scream about it from the rooftops. Um, but I had never considered the impact of a book about women trusting yeah. their guts, women learning how to reconnect with the voice inside, or as you so eloquently put in your essay, Jessica, about, you know, when you can't trust yourself, you learn to trust your community, which is such a potent yeah. idea. Um, I could have never imagined that this would be timed in the way that it is. So I guess I want to talk a little bit about that and your piece um, in the book on sure. intuitive process and in trusting your community. How do you feel about that right now in this moment when you feel like, probably like I do, like I can't trust the government, I can't trust our Supreme Court, I can't even trust or rely on the information that is being put out by major news sources and organizations. How do you, when, when you are feeling really stressed out, when you are really feeling the, the physical and psycho-emotional impacts of that, what do you do? What do you turn to? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And it's funny, before I came on, I was like, wow, this book is really so perfectly <laughs> timed. Because it really is this moment where the like the national political and cultural gaslighting <laughs> that women have been subject to like came to a head. And even even after it happened, right? Like even now that abortion is banned in all of these places, mm -hmm. we're still being gaslit. We're still being told, no, 
it's okay, you know, um, rape and incest victims will be able to get abortions, which is not really true. Right. Or this is not going to meaningfully impact women's lives. And so it does feel like this continuation um, of, of being gaslit. And so, yeah, my community has become incredibly important to me. And, you know, and I count my family in that um, and I count my friends in that, but I also count like this online community of feminists that I've relied on for, for so many years as I've been, as I've been writing online. And I, I think it's one of those, those things where you need to find a community of people that you can really trust. Because as I wrote in my essays, like you're, you're taught not to trust yourself (laughs) at so many different points. Yeah. And so even though, I have gone through this process of learning to trust myself and learning to trust my intuition. Um, there are still moments where I don't, and that's when I turn to the, to the people around me. And when it comes to everything that's happening with abortion and everything that's happening, I mean, really across politics, I I feel like I have never needed that community of, of people more than right now. And what does that what does that look like? How does that literally manifest for you with your community? Does it mean just simple things like um, being on a being more conversational on a text chain that you normally would just be like, "Hey guys, I'm great. Okay, on deadlines, can't talk." Or does it mean going out more with people? Or what does it look like for you? You know, it's funny. Recently, it's it's meant. Um... <laughs> listening to my family when they tell me like I need to calm the fuck down and take a nap like really like it's it's been hearing the truth about how this work is a is a marathon and not a sprint and having people come up to me and say hey why don't we go out for lunch and let's like take a break Mm -hmm. from all of this right um and that can be difficult but then in other ways like tangibly like trusting my community has meant turning to them when I'm doing this work and sort of accepting their support when I don't always want to I had this very weird experience a couple of weeks ago where I I did I joined TikTok I don't it was a somewhat terrible idea oh my god was it did you do this like in like a response like some kind of quick response to what's happening with twitter i feel like people are doing crazy things right now given everything i did it i did it before twitter but now i'm glad that i that i did because like twitter is freaking me out but oh wait you know i wait i saw the i saw one of the things you posted went viral went all around my feed and everyone else's feed where you on tiktok so I'm very glad that you joined it where you showed what, yep. what a very, um, you know, early, uh, fetal tissue looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, will you explain to listeners a little bit about that? Cause I think it's so brilliant when we think about the idea of pregnancy and, and yep. fertilization, you know, the right has really weaponized the visualization of it. They've really weaponized it and turned it into 
um, you know, at six weeks, the baby's in there with a pacifier going, mommy, right. you know, gaga. <laughs> and then we're going to just rip it out with the jaws of life. And what you kind of yeah. did is you put a, a visual truth to what that looks like. So we, will you, I mean, I didn't mean to usurp your, your talking about TikTok, no, but, no, no, no. but please tell That's listeners about that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So this this group of clinicians called the Maya Network, M-Y-A, um, published pictures of what early pregnancy looks like using uh, extracted tissue from when they perform uh, manual aspiration abortions. So the t- like everything is intact, essentially. And they showed pictures of early pregnancy, early abortion, uh, at different stages from, from six weeks to 10 weeks, because that is around the time that the vast majority of American women have abortions. And that happens to be the time period that these particular clinicians focus on care. And so they posted these pictures. Um, the guardian wrote about it. There's a great reporter there called Poppy Noor. And I saw the pictures. And even though I do this for a living, right? And I've had an early abortion and I I know all this stuff. There was something so powerful about seeing these images of what this really looks like and what it really looks like is nothing. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like there's no even at 9 weeks there's no visible embryo. It's <laughs> it's it's a great big it's a great big fucking nothing burger. And so I published these pictures in a TikTok knowing that there would be some anti-choice backlash um but the but the actual backlash was so bananas and so beyond anything that i expected because it was literally people not saying hey well you haven't zoomed in this isn't this isn't an ultrasound or whatever it was people saying that's fake you photoshopped that you doctored those pictures um and i mean like thousands and thousands of comments of people saying that um, women saying, uh, you're, you know, gaslighting me. I've had a miscarriage at, you know, seven weeks and I saw a fully formed baby, which is just not true. It was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life because there's a moment where you don't trust yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I know I had an early abortion. I know what it is. I know that these doctors are, are posting real pictures. There's a moment where you're like, is, did I, is, is there any truth? Like what? Because it's, you're just inundated with people attacking you for, for telling the truth. Right. And so in that moment, I definitely drew on my community and, and went to folks. And of course they were all supportive. And I know a lot of abortion providers and, and doctors and scientists, and they're all saying the same thing that of course that is true, but it is really difficult in those moments to, to fully trust yourself. And it was a, just a, a very bizarre sort of disheartening moment in general, because it made me realize for some people, you can, sh- like, you can literally show them in front of their eyes what the truth of a thing is, and they will never believe it. And you can go back and you can set, and you can provide more evidence, you can provide more proof, and it's just never going to happen. And that's a really bitter pill to swallow when it comes to um, feminism and abortion rights. And everything you just said is, I would say, like ground zero uh, of the long-term war, not just against women's bodies and rights and 
um, you know, our stories, but uh, in the silencing of women, in the like very, very long-term conditioning, which the book explores. I mean, it talks a lot about um, this exact idea where you can say something is a fact because you have experienced it. Your body knows, your body knows better than anybody else, anyone else's beliefs, anyone else's, you know, um, alternative research facts, you, your body knows. And yet, and yet you can have hundreds of thousands of people all over the country or the world telling you that you're wrong. You don't know what's right about what is happening in your own body or what's best for you in your body and that they should decide, you know, what is or isn't, uh, right for you. I, I wrote a little bit about this in my last book in era of ignition, um, coming of age in a time of rage and revolution that was about this this idea like that women are you know women know what is foundationally best for them and what is most true about their experience and about what is taking place in their bodies i mean i myself have also had an early abortion i have also had a miscarriage and i have also given birth to a daughter I want to know the man that can tell me more about what is or is not life and death than me. Right. That man does not exist. That person does not exist. And every woman's story is so complicated and different and true to who they are. So all of this to me feels like a, a weaponization of what our intuition tells us, what our gut tells us, this ability to know or not know what's true about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it continues on now. I mean, it continues on now with the Supreme Court. It's, it's happening even with, it's not, doesn't just necessarily pertain to, you know, cis women. Uh, it, it's pertaining to trans children, to trans adults. Yep. Um, most people in the LBG, L, LBGTQ community um like it's just it's hap- it seems to be happening everywhere and i wonder you know when you look at that when you look at all of these factors um is there any kind of guiding i i, I don't want to say like what gives you hope <laughs> but is there yeah. is there something besides just the community aspect of it that sure. um that does make you feel like there isn't there is another side to this that there is a a way to use our intuitive intelligence our knowing the truth about our bodies and about women's bodies and our experiences as a sort of weapon against fascism against what is happening right now is there some is there something in that way that you feel you feel good about looking towards the future yeah for sure i think you know i think one of the reasons we're seeing this incredible backlash, right? This incredible political backlash across all sectors partially is because women are listening to their intuition more, especially younger women. And I think that younger, younger women are growing up with a sense of themselves that is really different than women of our generation and maybe older did. Yes. So true. So true. Yeah. And it makes them dangerous, right? It makes them dangerous to the status quo. And I think that's partially what this backlash is about. And I don't think that they are going to be easily silenced. And so that gives me 
a tremendous amount of hope because I, I see all of these young women out there and they know themselves in a way that is so incredible, right? That like I didn't get to until my thirties or forties and they're sitting there like late teens, early twenties and they fucking know who they are yeah, and they trust themselves. And that to me is completely incredible and completely unprecedented. Yeah, I I have felt like, you know, I've said um, that I hope one of my great hopes for this book is that um, that the younger generations will find it and not just young girls, but young boys, because we need, you know, we need the men and and the teenage boys and we need them to be a part of the feminist conversation. We need them to to understand that intuitive process is also for them, um, Mm -hmm. that you know, that the feminine is also for them, that leading with violence is not always the answer. It doesn't have to be the answer, no matter what society has told them. Um, And that doesn't mean necessarily just physical violence, but just um, masculinity and and leaning towards the masculine is what we've all just been trained to do um, instead of having this sort of deeper connection um, with ourselves that might provide a different kind of intelligence and therefore a different kind of outcome in the world around us. And I, I hope that some of the young, the younger generations can, can have that, can have some kind of tool, which I hope the book provides for them in hearing your stories about everything that you've had to go through. I mean, you wrote about it in your book, Sex Objects and a beautiful memoir. And um, if they could, if they could, if they could like grow up and not have to deal with like a fraction of the therapy bills that you and I have (laughs) have had to deal with that if they could just, if it could come a little bit easier to them, the, the the trust, the not second guessing, the not having to question who you are and what you believe, you know, and we're, we're women who've taken, it's taken a long time for us to get here, right. To really be sort of standing in the place where we stand and to really believe in ourselves and what we have to say. But there's been, you know, years and years and years, decades, our 20s, um, in which that was really, really hard to navigate. Will you talk a little bit about that sort of transitional time in your life? Um, uh, just for any listeners that might not be familiar with your work or, um, or your sort of trajectory, sure. just talk a little bit about, about that, um, that period of your life and sort of coming into the incredible writer and thinker that you are today. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, yeah, for me, finding feminism, I mean, it, it's not just what led me to be a writer and to do the work that I'm doing, but it completely changed my life and changed my perception of, of who I was because I didn't trust who I was and I didn't believe that who I was um, made sense or was worthy uh, or was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, to, you know, to, for me, finding feminism, it, which really like began like in a state university intro to women's studies, right? Like very basic, like taking a, taking a class, um, realizing that all of these things that I felt were not just, were not about me. Right but were were weapons being used against me was was really powerful and realizing that there wasn't anything wrong with me that there was something wrong with a world that that blamed me for 
for who I was. That, that marked a real shift for me and it set me on the path that, that led me where I am today and led me to, to this amazing community of, of people. But it, it was difficult. It's difficult, you know, it, it's difficult to accept because even when you find that, right, and you find this language to put to your experience, which I think feminism really gives to a lot of people, it takes a minute to trust that and to, yes. and to trust yourself, yes. you know? And so that, I think a lot of my writing and a lot of my work was me sort of like, going through that process and getting to a place where I could trust myself. And part of the, the way I did that was to write about my experiences um, and to have people respond and say, oh my gosh, you know, I went through the same thing or I felt the same way. And that is what really did it for me. Again, like sometimes it takes that outside force to, to say like, no, that's, that's correct. I, I also went through that mm -hmm. to really, to, you know, to really hit it home for you. Um, but it's, it's one of those things. It's like, I, I can't imagine my life without feminism. I, like, I, I literally cannot imagine what I would be doing right now, how different my life would be. And that's why, you know, that's why for so long, part of my project has been trying to get as many people as possible and, and young women in particular um, to, to know about feminism and to be interested in feminism um, and, and to embrace it. And it's been so awesome to see how much that has changed and how many people do now. Yeah. I, um, I'm thinking about that in specific, you know, with our writing, um, both as, as writers and women who sort of grew up as sex objects in different ways. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the entertainment business. I was a child actor since the time I was 11 years old and, um, you know, spent most of my young adult life, um, you know, being told I was a very, very good actress, but if I could just lose five pounds, I would get this role. I mean, that's literally for a, a film that I did. Um, I had a director come and they asked me to lose five pounds. That's... So they, I, and I was like, sure. And I worked with oh. a dietitian that they hired for me, five pounds. How old were you? I was 21. Oh. Yeah. I didn't experience experience it so much in my preteen years. I was on a soap opera yep. when I was a kid, and I actually yep. kind of have nothing but great things to say about that experience. Um, wow. But it wasn't until after the soap opera years, like 18 and going forward, when my weight, um, I think also because I did a show called Joan of Arcadia, and I, I was much more in the public world um, and in the, right. the world of fame, that is larger than I think the soap opera world. And so then these expectations, right. I also, you know, you go from being the sort of sweet ingenue, the sweet kid to literally suddenly a, a sex object overnight. So yep. everyone is looking at you differently. And I think that transition was really hard for me. And, um, and without even knowing it, I mean, talk about intuition, talk about what the body knows and what, what it tells you you know, my first couple of poetry books is I started in poetry before I um, moved to other forms of writing. And uh, the poems that I wrote, like there's a poem I wrote in my first book called Free Stallion. 
um, which is called Kill Me So Much. And it's just about the ugliness of everything from my perspective perspective. And I think I was like 13 when I wrote this poem, but um, uh, it's about the ugliness of, to me, um, you know, the mutilation of getting your, of getting face work done as a woman and the expectations. And it's very, it's, it's like very much written in the style and tone and ode to um, my late mentor, Jack Hirschman, who was like, mm. you know, a self-proclaimed, um, communist (laughs) is very intense political writer so yeah you imagine a 13 year old girl trying to emulate that um as as we do but also kind of hitting a note about something kind of writing about something that i think i thought i understood but the truth is is that my it was it was seated like very i wanted to sound intellectual i wanted to sound like i knew but at the same time I, i i didn't quite know but i did like my body knew that what was Uh, happening to me, what was being expected of my physical self and not just necessarily my, my, my worth and my talent, what I was good at, but just what my body was expected to be and do the output, um, the, the expectations of it was, was stirring. It was in my subconscious. It was, it was there and it was tugging at me and it was coming out in my early writing in these really, really, um, abrasive intense young feminist poems that really deeply wanted to sound like Diane de Prima and like you know all these old school cool poets but still there was a there was a a reason that I was attuned towards that and I think it was because of of my gut of my intuition that sort of knew before my conscious mind did this was a problem and so that is the thing I leaned into for, for years to come as a writer and sort of learned how to, to, to more fine tune what it was exactly that I was angry about and how to express it in a way that other people, it would just not just alienate them from the conversations of my rage, but, but bring them into the fold of it and help them to also mm-hmm. feel angry about the things, the issues that, that make me feel mad. So I mean, yeah. for you, when you're writing, um, I would love to have like a little creative intuitive uh, conversation when we're talking about our, our writing. Here are two brief messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now, when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Buxton Books is proud to be a season sponsor of the Always Authors podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street. 
And we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at BuxtonBooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books. How does a piece start for you? As Let's just say as an essayist, as someone, or even like an opinion writer, somebody who has the seed of an idea. Um, how does that, how does that germinate and become a fully formed piece? How do you, as a, as a writer, as an empath, as somebody who similarly to me is so connected to their body and to their emotional intelligence, how do you let the writing come through and not let the emotional part of it override? What is that, what does that journey look like for you as a writer? Yeah, that you know, it's funny. It's a hard question because sometimes because I write regularly, right? Because I because part of my work like I do need to put out a, like a regular um output of work. Sometimes it means this is something I'm interested in. I'm going to sit down and do the work, right? Like sometimes it really just feels like I'm doing the work. But a lot of times and this is always when the piece ends up being really good and, and resonating. It's an idea will come to me suddenly, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like I'll, I'll be like, Oh shit. Like, and then it becomes, it's urgent, right? It becomes like, an, like there is an urgency that I need to get on paper immediately. Um, and I will, I mean, it'll sometimes be that like, I'm, waking myself up at two in the morning and like, just like pounding out on the, on the laptop. And in those moments, honestly, I sort of, I do let the emotion take over. Mm. I'm just, I am like so angry and I'm just going to like spit that anger onto the page or like whatever the emotion is. And I'm, I'm really in it, <laughs> right? Like I'm really, really in it. And then of course I'll have to go back and, <laughs> and make it a little bit. Right. Right cleaner and more palatable but honestly those tend to be the pieces that that do the best right. and, that, and that people like the best because you're coming at it from this moment of like really authentic emotion <laughs> you know it's 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 a it's a great feeling but it's also it's also strange, but this is like, and I'm sure you feel this way too. Sometimes it's like, this is what I'm grateful for writing because it's a job. Yes. But it also does help with that sense of urgency, right? Where it's like, you have yes, this so thing true. Needs to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and it, it may be, you know, before I was writing, like whatever that like big emotion was or whatever that feeling was that needed to go somewhere, I might have like wielded it against myself in some way um, or internalized it. And now it, it goes somewhere and creates something, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. And for, for like thinking about, you know, it going somewhere, it doing something, even just to, to go in one layer deeper, so for people yeah. who are listening that might, you know, would love to be able to have an attunement to their creative intuitive process in the way that you do, right? To be able to point your finger and say, I know how I mm. write. And I also know not just how I write, but how I get there. Because to mm. me as a writer, you know, when people have like ask, like, 
what's your advice about writing? Yeah. Um, you know, mine is not like write every day. That's works for some people. But I think knowing the way in which you uniquely, like knowing what you uniquely have to say in this world as a writer, yeah. but also knowing the process of how you get there. I think the process yeah. is half of the struggle. And a lot of writers, a lot of people sort of quit in the process stage. There's an essay um, in the book uh, that's called, um, I believe it's called In the Mouth of the Wolf, You Will Find It. Uh, and it's, um, some of it is, uh, looks at this idea of process, the idea yeah. of um, procrastination as mm. um, an actual tool. It might be part of the process of how someone shows up to the page. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about the emotion, about how that can dictate uh, the path of an essay, the path of work, will you just talk even like a little bit more about, um, you know, like, do you write all the way through? Do you edit as you go? I find if I edit as I go, then I get stuck on how bad of a writer I am. <laughs> so I just keep telling myself, I'm like, you have the idea, just go through. I know that sentence you just wrote is trash. Do not go back and try to fix it right now. Get all the way to the end. And then you can yeah. go through and do a second pass and go in and fine tune all the points. Is that what it's like for you? Or what is it like, yeah, you know, no, in that way? Yeah, no, that's exactly, I don't, I don't stop. I think that's, I think that stopping can be a mistake and I can get too much in my head. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. I think it's much more, powerful to just like you have to go with what you're feeling when the best writing that you're going to get is when you really feel like it is necessary to write and I don't want to like lose that feeling and that momentum and so I'll just go through and listen there'll be sometimes you know I'll be writing a sentence and I'll be like wait no I'm going to write it like this right but it's not coming from a place of let me take a pause let me edit um it's coming from a place of urgency and necessity. Mm -hmm. And I think like, this is what we're talking about where we, where we talk about intuition and, and listening to yourself and listening to your body. It's like, you really have to do that. Yeah. Um, and do the writing that your body is telling you to do. And that's why I agree. You know, I don't really love that. Like, Oh, you know, write your 500 words a day or like yeah. write for a certain, yeah. you know, hours in the morning or whatever. Like that has never worked for me. <laughs> that, I do that. Me either. Yeah. There's going to be days where like you don't write at all. There might be weeks where you don't write at all. And that's, that's fine. You know, you have to, you have to do it when it, when it comes. Um, and that's not always what people <laughs> want to hear. Right. Like I think people want there to be a formula Yes. and I just don't know that there is, there's no like magic trick. There's no formula. There's no, um, yes, writing is a skill and you get better at it from doing it, a doing it a lot, but it's not like this habit that you can form where everything is going to magically fall into place. Oh, that is just words to truly, truly live by. And I think, again, this is, um, this is something that is, that affects, you know, any and all writers or people that are trying to mm -hmm. become writers. But again, I do think that there is something to be said about, um, the conditioning that women uniquely experience as far as being told, you know, like, this is the path to follow. This is the way to do it right, because all of these men before you have done it so well. And so we go, yeah. oh, God, that must be it. I should read Stephen King's on writing, and I should write the way that he writes. 
Um, yeah. Well, that that's actually a great book. When I was younger, I loved reading that book. It was it, it informed yeah. a lot of my ideas and thoughts about it. But at the end of the day, that's how Stephen King writes. You know, like that's exactly. his process. Um, exactly. And it's a brilliant one and works brilliantly for him. But I think part of that listening, and I should also clarify that it's the essay that I was just referring to um, is not called In the Mouth of the Wolf, you will find it. That's a different essay. The, the, for anyone that ends up reading the book who is listening to this, um, the book is called Listening in the Dark, the essay on craft and um, uh, intuitive um, creativeness is in an essay called Crossing Paths with Ghosts. So my my the stuff that I wrote about was in that piece. And I think that mm. there is this real this real emphasis on trying to write like how other people write instead of thinking about yes. how we can show up to the page. And that yeah. sometimes that looks very different for very different people. Um, but trusting your process, um, you know, trusting it, even if it looks crazy, even if it looks like I have to go, mm. you know, running, I have to, um, you know, go shopping. I have to just take yeah. very long naps because I get exhausted thinking about a piece. Um, whatever that may be, we just you have to find out for yourself um, how you uniquely yeah. show up to a page, which I, I think that there's not enough conversations about that necessarily, um, at least that I haven't seen as far as process is concerned and, and, yeah. and individual process for different people. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think that the other thing, like the thing that's hard, right. I, for women in particular is not only to, to learn how to do that and to like, listen to your intuition and find like your own individual process and way of writing, but that for a lot of women, there is not space for them to do that in their lives. Yes. Right. Like if you have to go pick up your kid from school <laughs> or if you're waking up with a baby or you have like, there is so much extra burden and shit that, that women do that, that finding not just the like emotional space, but literal physical and logistical space to be able to figure that out can be really, really challenging. <laughs> that, you know, that reminds me of um, when, uh, during the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic, I forget the statistic, but it was something like 100% of new jobs that were, um, that, that were women, where women were working, um, were gone after the first year of COVID, which means there was 100% dropout rate um, from yeah. women in the workforce, because women were as exactly as you said, they took care of the household, they were expected to take care of the children, they were sort of the primary um, family backbone. And without them, uh, you know, children being at home, all of those sort of factors made it almost impossible for a woman to go to work. So it's so true. I mean, finding that time in and of itself, um, to, you know, to just go empty your head and, and even think about how you might you know, come at things as a writer and waste time, for lack of a better word, in, in the process of figuring that out is extremely difficult. Oh, yeah. I say constantly that mental space and headspace is a privilege, and it's often a particularly male privilege, mm -hmm. right? Like, to to have that freedom in your mind where you're not like, okay, shit, like, the, I need to schedule a doctor's appointment or I need to pick up toilet paper. Like, that's a privilege. It's it's hard. It's a, it's a hard thing to to find and manage and keep a hold of. That is so true. Just yesterday, my, my daughter has um, 
has the flu. Um, and uh, yesterday she was just coughing, coughing, coughing all day. I mean, and like that whooping cough, like really intense. Ugh. And I couldn't do anything. I, I have like hundreds of emails I needed to respond to. And I just kept coming down to check on her. And it just, it was like in my whole body, I couldn't focus at all because she was so sick. And meanwhile, my husband, who's an incredible dad and an incredible partner, but he was just down working in his office. It was like just a very different kind of response. Um, Whereas, and I know I didn't need to be there with her every second, um, but, but the set, the feeling of it, uh, which is very different. And that's a great example when you talk about the the, the privilege of headspace. Um, I mean, yeah. my God, they're two very different, um, different experiences, which inform yeah. our ability to have output in our creative life. Right. And the world isn't built around our, <laughs> like the way our headspace uh, operates or is, right? Like the, the world is built around how men's headspace <laughs> works. Yeah. So it's like there's all of these additional hurdles. I think writers having conversations like this, you know, your book, like talking about intuition, all of this helps get us to a place where it becomes more possible. Mm-hmm. But it it does require, I think, this this proactive work and this proactive thinking and these conversations to to make that happen. I could not agree more. Um, well, Jessica, I think we just have a few more minutes. Um, but then I, you know, listeners are going to get to hear from us again once we launch our wildly successful podcast. Um, yes. Coming up in well, the future. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything, you know, is there anything that, that we didn't touch on? I mean, we could, I could just talk to you for hours. I feel like this could just I know be it. us by a fire. <laughs> with marshmallows on sticks being like, fuck the patriarchy. Good. You have a graham cracker. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a party. I'm there. I'm into it. I mean, yeah, we could, we could talk forever about it, but no, I'm just so grateful that we did get to have this conversation and that we are able to, to work through this stuff, to have a community right around us and to have books like yours that really are not just like sparking the conversation, but getting deeper into it, right? Like to give us a moment to like go beyond the surface, I think is so important. Yeah, go beyond the surface. That's the, that's the mantra. Um, well, thank you for having Absolutely. this conversation. And, you know, I hope people find our book and, um, and sort of see it as an important tool, uh, a vital tool in this uh, conversation that we were having about politics of the body oppression of the body um, and of our stories and of our livelihoods. And um, I think thinking, thinking with everything that you just said that, um, that sometimes the greatest weapon lies within. And so exploring that is, is brings me um, hope and joy and, and thinks, and, and makes me think about all the good possibilities for future generations that won't have to go through a fraction of what we went through. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers.